Think about the first time you pulled an all-nighter with your friends. Do you remember when we went camping with Dave and Pete Catoni and me and you in those horrible, ridiculous New Jersey woods with trees that were like two inches wide and like suburban woods? Yes. And we carried like a, we carried like a, a, a cooler, duffel bag full of beer. Full of bad beer that was warm by the time we <laughs> And arrived. we didn't even drink it. Yeah. And we like lugged all this beer to go camping. Yeah. And then it poured rain. Yeah. <laughs> this is something that Tom, you and I did. Definitely. And in the middle of the pouring rainstorm, we decided to stick it out and try to light a fire. I think everybody kind of was going in and out of sleep. But I remember hovering over this. I got pine needles under like a tarp. We're and I was trying fire. to get this fire going for like an hour. <laughs> and then it got going. And then you were there and Pete was there. And I was like waking everybody up. I was like, we've got a fire. Got a fire. And then the sun came up. We didn't drink any of the beer. We had to lug the beer back out. <laughs> and we had stayed up all night. Yes. Now I, and we were bonded. No question. I'll never forget that for the rest of my life. We were 16 or some 17. Me and you. I'll never forget that for the rest of my life. I bring it up and you remember it. Of course. That's what I remember about Big Cypress. It was indescribable when the sun came up. The fact, you know, like, how do you tell anyone about that? You can't. Like, I felt bonded. Like, I'll run into somebody on the street and they'll be like, I was a Big Cypress. I'm like, oh my God. I say, I know. That bond. Described by Fish guitarist Trey Anastasio as Fish and their fans condensed into a single moment. Though Fish are rightly known for their long jams and stretching compositions, this single point in space and time in a Florida swamp on January 1st, 2000, with the sun coming up on a new century, remains one of the most important in Fish's long career. Welcome to After Midnight, Fish's Big Cypress Festival, brought to you by Osiris. My name is Jesse Jarno. On this episode, we'll stay up all night with Fish, revisiting the performance that pushed the band's skills to their limit during a seven-hour set that captured the full spectrum of their music. We'll talk to the band, learn the identity of Father Time, get a view from inside the airboat, and count down until midnight. Get your cheesecakes ready. It's almost time. Dick Clark didn't host his New Year's Rock and Eve celebration in 1999, relieved of duty for the first time in decades. Instead, there was the slightly less rockin' and perhaps more emergency-ready Peter Jennings, hosting ABC 2000 Today. We're going to go now to the big Cypress Seminole Indian Reservation in Florida. There was the biggest traffic jam that we know of in the country was caused uh, on what's sometimes called Alligator Alley, which is South Florida's uh, east to west highway. And it was jammed today with fans of the fish going to the Big Seminole Indian Reservation to hear a fish concert. Um, if you don't know fish, uh, think Grateful Dead, at least in terms of their dedicated followers. And 75,000 people, it must have been the earliest sold-out concert of anywhere on this Millennium Eve celebration. And they sang for us out on that reservation and as well for their devotedly fervent fans. Newsflash, they weren't really going live to Big Cyprus. It was delayed into the wee hours. And when ABC did go to Big Cyprus... They'd devote a few minutes to fish, 
but ignore the salient point of Fish's performance at Big Cypress, that they were playing for seven hours. Though Fish wouldn't invoke any of these particular names to describe Big Cypress, there's a long history of durational music, both improvised and composed, from Wagner's 15-hour ring cycle to more indeterminate pieces like Lamont Young's well-tuned piano, generally lasting five or six hours. The German Kosmische band Can are said to have once played a six-hour set in Berlin. It's splitting hairs to argue over the exact longest. The Guinness Book of World Records is one thing, but music is music. Among their contemporaries in rock and roll, both mainstream and underground, Fish's long-duration Big Cypress performance put them in a class by themselves. Of course, Fish were no stranger to long jams, laying the musical template for Big Cypress within the very first years of the band's career, almost before they'd even played outside of Vermont. The band called them Okipa ceremonies, playing for extended periods for 8 to 10 hours at a time, sometimes tag-teaming down into smaller ensembles or even solo performances. The first one, bassist Mike Gordon remembered, involved drinking hot chocolate made with vanilla, maple syrup, fresh chocolate, and a half ounce of marijuana. One of the jams featured a long trio segment without John Fishman, when the drummer put his face down on his snare drum for what Trey remembered as four hours. At another, Gordon fixated on a single bass line. His bandmate stepped out for a half hour and returned to find him playing the same note. The second such ceremony was illuminated by candles, recorded by two mics hanging from the ceiling, and excerpted on Junta as Union Federal, which we heard a little from in episode one of After Midnight. Here, the band breaks down into a keyboard-based duo for a segment, while Trey and Fish engage in what the French might refer to as musique concrète, and what to others might sound like bong hits. Or it could just be Fishman playing some kind of musical water pipe. At this remove, who's to say, really? There was some amount of collegiate self-indulgence almost literally baked into the jams, but also a seriousness of purpose, of a band working actively to expand its vocabulary and sense of shared mission. This sense of intense connection wound especially through the first 15 years of Fish's career, filled with deeply intentional musical exercises. Somewhat infamously, the band created what they called a secret language, a series of musical cues for the audience to respond to. When Fish fans listened closely for the Simpsons theme or the sound of Trey scraping his pick or a half dozen other cues, what they might have discovered was an even less explained language, the band's own long-running instrumental conversation, a musical source code that at its heart was as private as anything could possibly be which is perhaps why 75,000 people wanted in on it. I think they let everybody in like about 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon on the New Year's Eve um, just a giant swarm of people. I remember standing there when they opened the gate and they just all came running in fast. You know, I got a lot of good pictures of just people running running by me or running running at me and uh, and uh, started laying out their uh, little little places to sleep and everything else. But running in there, boy, was that fun. Um, 
there was no security. I remember there was no check of anything. And people running in with full bottles of champagne and everything else. And it was a real party. It was a lot of fun. It was what people came to see. At dusk on December 31st, Fish took the stage and played for nearly two hours. Chris Dolmetsch even encountered an alligator on the concert field. It was the, the day set, and we were in there jamming out, and all of a sudden, an alligator came through the crowd. Like, I turned around, and there was a couple guys with an alligator over their neck. So I, I can't tell you that I saw them wrangling the thing and that it was running through the crowd, or if they were just bringing it through the crowd to kind of, you know, like make a display. I remember scrambling to get the picture because I wanted to get that picture because I was like, are there going to be alligators here? I would think there would be, but I wasn't sure. They played their first monumental jam of the day, segueing from split open and melt into catapult, building from dark valley up to strange plateau as the sun set over both the Big Cypress Swamp and the 20th century. It was a hint of what was to come. The set closed with a fish debut, a J.J. Kale bar band staple. It, too, became subsumed into Fish's secret language. But there were still a few more hours until all these peaches and tambourines of which Trey sang. Scott Bernstein, now an editor at Jambase, recalls settling in for the long haul. There was such a long break in between the first set that Fish played on the 31st and the actual midnight set. And I actually took a nap during it, which uh, I think that would be the only time that I ever slept in between Fish sets. And we got into the actual concert grounds about an hour before Fish went on. And people were just streaming in. It was people as far as the eye can see. And the energy was just building up to this huge crescendo. It's certainly something that I'll never forget. When Fish first announced that they would be playing from midnight until the sun rose, I just thought it was fishy. I, uh, excuse the pun, I just, I, I didn't really see that it was actually going to happen. I thought maybe there would be a set break in there. It just... Blue, I just, I really couldn't fathom the fact that Fish would play for seven hours straight. And uh, when, when Trey announced from stage earlier in the festival that they truly would be taking the stage at midnight and playing until the sun rose, my, my mind was completely blown. And I was so excited for the set and couldn't wait and just made sure to pace myself. And that is why I made sure to get plenty of rest before entering the concert grounds. Hey, you're in tune to uh, 91.7 Thin Air, WY2XKK Radio. Welcome to the big push at this point. This is the Eggman. I'm up in the studio with Mr. Sparkle, the one called Tad Cautious. Also, Pistol, Stamen, and the Notorious G to the I to the B. And we're getting our swerve on back here on the station. I see some of y'all lighting off fireworks, doing whatever it is you need to do. DJ Huevos Rancheros, a.k.a. Gabe Tessariero, was one of the veteran festival DJs assigned to keep the party going on thin air, blasting out jams over the seminal pastures and swamplands at 91.7 megahertz. Because I was sort of whatever the resident, like, New York guy. And 
and you know the the Def Jam guy or whatever, and they had sort of slotted me in to kind of like put down some break beats and you know put down some whatever. I had some Fat Boy Slim in there and some you know some Parliament Funkadelic and and you know different sort of dan- more dancey upbeat music to like get people ramped up because people were actually listening to the radio station out there. They'd just been tra- after whatever we'd done the Lemon Wheel and we'd done um, Great Went Lemon Wheel. We'd done a bunch of them. Um, Oswego. So people were trained to listen into their radios and people like loved it and totally participated in it. So I think that night had fallen or it was dusk maybe. Um, and people were setting off fireworks and, you know, people were, people were ramping up. I think there were folks that had either decided that they were going to camp out on the actual concert field in between the sets or had gone back to their tense and raged in the you know in the lots and come back or you know you could definitely feel the buzz of the millennium right coming so that that was one of that was definitely memorable to me the the feeling that the the feeling of that particular gig and that the buzz that preceded it i remember the crowd just being really crazy at that point uh there were people dressed up in like pretend this is kind of weird but they were dressed up in like pretend um, uh, uh, security outfits and they had like those kind of cones that the uh, that the air traffic directors have when they're out on the uh, air traffic control uh, those cones and they were like directing people uh, around and I wasn't sure if it was authentic or what but it was kind of weird Jay Curley now marketing director for Ben & Jerry's, was there too. It's hard to describe, but it felt like everyone was was on edge but trying to have a good time. You know, walking into the the concert grounds, whatever, 11, 11.30, people around us seemed to be freaking out. And Megan and I were fairly heightened. We were walking in with a crew of about 15 people or so trying to just get our spot. Uh, and at one point, Megan really had to pee, so... We broke off, went to a porta potty, and thought it was going to be quick. It wasn't. We got separated from all of our friends. The energy just kept building and building, and, and, and next thing we knew, we were trying to get to where we thought they were going, and there were these barriers put up, these big, massive jersey barriers. And we had no idea what was going on. Up on the stage, all we could hear was a tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. That kept building and building and building, and we were cut off right in front of these barriers, people around us freaking out. I remember one girl trying to give us lollipops because she thought that would help everyone. (laughs) And through it all, we were trying to figure out what was going on, and the next thing we knew that, that there was some type of lane in front of us. That's what those jersey barriers were. But again, we had no idea. Behind the scenes, it was getting complicated as manager John Paluska recalls. That was a stressful few hours leading up to midnight. The whole midnight gag was um, complicated and um, impossible to really rehearse ahead of time. And it involved two things. One was the um, band moving through the crowd in the hot dog they they wanted to resurrect the hot dog and drive with it it was going to look like one of the swamp boats and then all the sides were going to come ripping off of it and it was going to be placed on top of a pickup truck and they would be delivered to the stage in the hot dog 
The hot dog, of course, was a 15-foot-long hot dog with seating for four, designed by Chris McGregor of the San Francisco design firm Rocket Science. The band had appeared on it five New Year's previous, riding it to the upper reaches of Boston Garden to the sound of Captain Beefheart's Tropical Hot Dog Night. It became an instant part of fish lore, where many bands might build a whole tour out of having access to a flying hot dog, like so many of their stunts, Fish stashed it away after just one use. For the second part of the action, the band turned to sculptor Lars Fisk. Occasionally, I'd be invited to to make suggestions about how and what would go on on the stage as well. And this was a very, very rare, rare thing. But typically, for the New Year's Eve g- gags, they would... They would invite some more of the visual design to take place directly on the stage. So much of this, you know, really was just shy of improvisation. You know, I mean, we really concocted this series of events um, not long before the curtains opened. So uh, with with all the different things going down, there's bound to be problems. On stage, there was a portalette just as one of the versions of the long gig had decreed. And behind the drum kit, a giant clock materialized, connected to an exercise bike powered by Father Time himself. Father Time was like a, was a buddy of mine who was one of the artists that I had, um, that I had brought in to help. Uh, and he had his own project that had nothing to do with anything on stage. And um, he, I guess he would suggest... He was suggested to, as somebody to fill the role because um, he was a, he was an avid cyclist, and the role called for uh, Father Time to pedal a stationary bicycle. He, uh, John Marius, he uh, had participated in a bunch of festivals previous to this one, um, and he would create these outlandish bicycle-like. Uh, monstrosities of multiple bikes welded together to form a sort of a, a large group group pedaled machine. So, again, a good pedaler. But experienced pedaler or not, Father Time would fall off his bike and the whole planet would be stuck in the 20th century unless the time-making machine was fed exactly the right fuel. The meat sticks were a prop that um, had been conceived of as this magical device to re-engage time so that all this stuff could go down properly. And um, I think it was really pretty simple, though, because in the end, it was made out of a pair of pantyhose and some rubber bands and cotton stuffing. So no problems there, really. The rest wasn't as simple as John Paluska remembers. And then there was the whole father time thing. Um, and I'm, my memory's a little hazy. All I remember is there were some mechanical problems with this whole clock. And, the, there, you know, father time, I, I don't even remember exactly what the whole bit was, but something to do with father time and, the, the, and this huge clock on stage and... We couldn't get the darn thing to work exactly right, so it ended up being sort of an approximation. There was a lot of stress 
in the hours leading up to it, we were frantically trying to get both this um, the hot the whole hot dog rig and the whole Father Time thing together. Well, that was a that was a whole string of calamity and moments, uh, but it, it actually went off pretty well, I think. Uh, I don't re- exactly recall where I, where I was because I was keeping an eye on uh, some of the performers that I had outfitted for certain roles on stage and their costumes and the clocks that were built and the, all the other mechanisms that were created for this all had to sort of operate simultaneously and and you know we were I certainly wasn't uh, coming at it from a, a sort of a a stage manager position because like I said you know I'm I'm a sculptor and so I was probably worried about whether or not the mask would fall off the father time that I had made out of paper mache the, the previous afternoon. Lars's co-partner on the visual design team, Russ Bennett, helped coordinate the band's entrance. And we decided that we would bring the band into the venue on the hot dog. And we were going to disguise it in a giant um, uh, airboat, which we fabricated around a truck. Um, and actually, the chief gave me his airboat to use. Um, and then we also took that sound and ran it through the, the the sound system, you know, from the stage. And uh, we had choreographed this whole thing where the security, the horses would come in and they would lead the way and we'd be able to make an opening through the crowd and we would stop at one particular point and we'd very carefully said, okay, we're going to have these little ground-mounted sort of fireworks that shoot up in the air, um, theatrical stuff, and uh, the, the vehicle was supposed to stop at just the right place and those would go off and then the sides would come off the conveyance, the truck, and the hot dog with the band in it would be revealed and it would make its way the rest of the way. That was the plan, anyway. At the peak of the concert at 11.30 p.m. on New Year's Eve, a reservation dog lay down to sleep in the middle of peaceful Snake Road, the Seminole Tribune reported. The little stores on the res had less business than usual. Over on the Miccosukee Reservation, they were ringing in the New Year with Julio Iglesias. Backstage at Big Cypress, in the band's compound... It was quiet as the band prepared to play. As usual, if one could see backstage, Trey Anastasio would be spotted with a guitar around his neck, warming up, and wandering over towards the plywood wall dividing the private space from the public. All I remember is standing behind the wall at my trailer, away from the trailer, I was alone, before walking out and hearing the sound on the other side. Maybe that's what people at like 11, 10 minutes before we went on stage. It's just like, oh my God. It was time to go. In the driver's seat was trusted tour manager Richard Glasgow, the man who, among other jobs, carried the cash in a little baggie, as we learned in episode two. Tonight, he was piloting a truck 
disguised as a giant hot dog, disguised as an airboat, with fish hidden inside. He just had to get them through a frothing crowd of 75,000 as the clock counted towards midnight. Nobody drafted me. I'm pretty sure I volunteered and said, I'm driving this thing. And then as I was sitting there getting ready to drive through 75,000 people, maybe feeling a little regret, because <laughs> it was intimidating. Riding shotgun was Brad Sands. It was very chaotic. It was like, a, like oh, shit, we, we have 10 minutes to get there. We got to get there. This is like 11.50 when we started. So we had basically 10 minutes to get there, and we'd pull the truck in, and then they would take the band off, off of there. Then we'd... Then the truck just sat there the whole, like the hot dog was in place, I think, through the whole set. It just sat there. There was a security meeting about whether to just have the ponies, like, you know, sort of plow the way through the audience or clear the way, not plow for people, but clear the way through people. And probably Brad or John Langenstein or somebody just said, no, we need a, a bike rack pathway to make this work, which is absolutely correct. Um, for a lot of reasons. I was on the passenger seat. Richard was driving, and um, we were. It was like an airboat. Like basically, we were in a pickup truck, and there was like a, this like airboat built around it, you know. And it would it came in the back of the venue, and we had like we had to bike rack basically a lane, you know. Because originally the idea was like, oh, we'll just drive through the crowd. Like, what do you guys talk? It's like a hundred thousand people. This is insane, you know. Like, that will not work. We won't get there. It'll be like fucking twelve forty-five. We'll still be like at the soundboard, you know. I had to hit a certain mark on the field. There's a little flag planted in the grass down the pathway, and if I got within fifteen feet of that mark, they would fire off some pyro, as I recall. After a while, we saw all these mounted police coming down which was a sign of something, but we weren't sure if it was good or not. And then we saw this float coming that looked almost like a boat. And I was like, is that the thing on the ticket? What's going on? And so I started the drive and of course, instantly something goes wrong. And that was the fact that the spotlights that were shining on, you know, what was at that point, an airboat were, it was like staring into the sun, literally. I couldn't see anything, nothing, zilch. So I was just sort of trying to figure it out and blindly driving and looking to the sides, which was impossible because the boat was hanging over the sides. And so Brad was radioing whoever he was radioing, maybe Haddon or somebody saying, please turn off the spotlights, we can't see anything. Atop the airboat slash hot dog, things were chaotic too as the recording of the band playing Meat Stick began to filter over the speakers. We drove through the crowd in the hot dog, and it was like bombs going off and horses like leaping sideways. You remember that? There were like horses pulling it or something? Or No, there were horses next to us. There were like guys, like security guards on horses, and they were like neighing up from the crowd. They didn't like the energy. The mounted police came by. This float exploded almost right in front of us. Freaked people out. Everyone was screaming. But it kept driving by, and we looked past, and we actually saw the band on the hot dog. <laughs> As they're making their way to the stage, we're basically smiling and waving and yelling, yelling Happy New Year at them. I missed the, missed the mark, but they shot the pyro off anyway. So that was great. So that was somewhat of a success. Uh, and then I took the boat down through the audience towards the stage, and uh, so it was just a hot dog then, actually, not a boat. And the band was up there. People were freaking out, and we were driving to the stage. Designer Russ Bennett was in the thick of it. 
I remember standing there, we stopped, and I, like if I had moved one billionth of an inch more, I would have had a firework just right up my butt. John Palusco remembers some of the grisly details. I recall that you know, it was supposed to shed its sides and, and um, expose the hot dog, and something didn't quite work on that either. There was people running along with chainsaws trying to turn the boat into a hot dog. All I remember is somebody like, as it's pass- passing through the crowd, towards the stage, which was its own thing, because we just didn't realize, Richard didn't realize, they they were shining lights on it, like a spotlight, so that he could, you know, so that people could see it. But Richard, Glasgow, was driving, and he couldn't see because he had a spotlight right in his eyes. (laughs) These are the things you can't rehearse ahead of time. So he's frantically trying to get them to turn the spotlight off of him because he's driving into a crowd of people without being able to see. Meanwhile, they're trying to get the sides of the, the, you know, the, the prop pieces off the side to reveal the hot dog, and some of them weren't coming loose, so they're literally like, we're going through the crowd, and they've literally got, like, chainsaws trying to saw these things off. Oh, my God. Anyway, somehow they got them off and exposed the hot dog, but that, that didn't work quite as... You know, it makes you realize a lot of our other New Year's ones came off really seamlessly. From further away, across the crowd, the chaos wasn't quite as palpable, as lyricist Tom Marshall remembers. I was with my friends Tebow, Reagan, Bridget, and Matt, and we were up on the poser platform. That's what Brad Sands called the VIP platform that we experienced the whole show on, really. And it was probably for people with walking disabilities, but we also hung out on it. It was about five feet high and kind of off to the left and had a great view of the stage. And the hot dog sailed on the ocean of humans just right at head level from about 50 yards back and made the journey slowly through the crowd to the stage for the midnight festivities to really start. But as Brad Sands and Richard Glasgow tell us, the hot dog's perilous journey to the stage wasn't over yet. Brad or I or both of us realized that the structure was sticking out wider than the stage. The way they had built the hot dog on top of it was a, like it was like a truck with a rack, and they put these two-by-fours or two-by-sixes on to, so the hot dog could sit on it, and we had a hole that we were going to drive into, and it was going to like go right on the stage, you know? Whoever constructed it left these two-by-fours sticking out too far on either side. When we got to the thing, like the two-by-fours were too, we couldn't get in, couldn't fit, like we couldn't get in. I guess I had two choices to not pull the boat in, the hot dog in, and have the New Year's thing fail, or drive it in there and pray to God that gunning it and breaking off those two-by-fours didn't send the band flying backwards off the truck. We're like, oh shit, you know? So like Richard just ran, we're like, ram it, he just ran it, the, the wood broke off, <laughs> you know? It was definitely one of those moments like, oh God, total spinal tap, like clink. It seemed like we always kind of were able to like, Almost like the band, in a way, like improvise solutions, like live in time. But that one was just basically was just jamming in there. For lighting director Chris Carota, the chaos created by the hot dog was only just beginning. Somewhere during the dog's journey, perhaps as Brad and Dickie rammed the stage, key cables got disconnected, and Carota would have to illuminate Fish's longest set without part of his light rig. Finally, the band made it to the stage saved Father Time by feeding sausage links into the gearworks of the universe, took to their instruments, picked up the jam from their recorded selves, and began to play their way into the new century. 
hey, happy new year. It was after midnight and Fish got to work. Out in the crowd, where the hot dog had passed through, the ramifications were instant. Once uh, Fish started playing, those plywood fences all collapsed. The relief that we felt, the barriers went right down. It took us no less than two minutes in a field of 80,000 people to find our dozen or so friends that we had left. Right after they reached the stage, somebody right next to us knocked down that metal barrier, and the crowd just in our little area was just swept into this little corridor. So before you know it, we're looking at a straight path to the front of the stage, and we went from 100 yards out to riding the rail in about a minute, not realizing that this was at all going to happen. Three hours in one spot, before you know it, we are riding the rail for the midnight set. Uh, and it was this crazy moment because somebody knocked down that barrier and then this just our little section of the crowd went swept into that corridor and wound up right in the front of the stage. And so when they collapsed, we had just... It felt like acres of space around us. You know, we've been at this big concert with 100,000 people in crowds for a day and a half at that point. Um, you know, add in the traffic jam. We've been dealing with crowds and whatnot for two and a half days. And all of a sudden, you know, it's a stroke of midnight, uh, Downward Disease is playing, and we have nothing but space. So I just remember it as one of the most joyous moments of my life. I'll, I'll always remember it. Uh, you know, we both just had huge smiles on our faces and it felt like we did like backflips. You know, I'm sure we just jumped up and down and, you know, like a 15 foot radius or something and we're twirling around. But it just felt like we were doing like gymnastics in the middle of this crowd because uh, we all of a sudden had all this space, you know, and as uh, the fireworks are going off and everybody's so happy. Um, and we're just, you know, it, we can finally sort of breathe <laughs> for the first time in a couple days. Audience members who pay attention to such earthly details as clocks may have noticed that midnight came a few minutes late at Big Cypress. And it wasn't because Fish failed to save Father Time. This is because of yet another potential disaster unfolding backstage, as promoter Dave Worland described. John Tluska and I, from the very beginning, we both are like total firework fanatics. We love fireworks. And so every festival, we would always have fireworks at the end. Um, and John and I always agreed that the best fireworks displays that you would go to as a kid would be like the last three or four minutes. So we would go to the fireworks company and say, we want the whole display to be like the last three or four minutes. And then we want the last three or four minutes to be like even better. So that was, that was, that was kind of the, the maxim for all the festivals. But when we got to Big Cypress, we said, this one's got to be better than all of them put together. So we had not one site behind the stage where the fireworks would come up, but we had three, one to stage right, one behind the stage, one to stage left. And all of them were just chock full of all kinds of pyrotechnics. And in fact, the company that, that, that did it, um, the one we trusted so much was out of Vermont. So they actually brought all the fireworks down from Vermont. They had to get a permit in every single state they went through because, you know, they had, you know, explosives, you know, in, in trucks just going through all these states. At any rate, they called me on the radio just before midnight, and they said, Dave, we're really freaking out here because there are helicopters in the sky. I'm, you know, I'm not sure whether... They could have been police helicopters, they could have been uh, media, um, could have been the chief, you know. And he was worried because they generate like a, like a static electricity 
which he said could prematurely ignite the fireworks on the ground, which would super endanger his staff and anyone on the ground within God knows how, you know, they could be hundreds of yards away. And he was really scared of that. So we had to scramble to get, find out who was in these helicopters, reach out to them by radio somehow, and get them out of the area before they could release the fireworks. And in fact, I don't know if anyone remembers, I doubt it, but the fireworks display was a little bit delayed at midnight. John Paluska confirms this. We didn't get it right right on at midnight. It was also abstract and for almost anybody in the audience so far away and hard to see in terms of the father time thing that I don't think, you know, I never heard anybody saying, well, they really screwed that up. Um, so it was more one of those many instances where you are much more acutely aware of all the little minutia and how they're not working out the way it's supposed to and forgetting that the average person actually observing and experiencing it is probably not noticing any of it. And that was stressful because we had a very elaborate scheme we wanted to pull off and it didn't quite come off the way we wanted it to. But overall, it, you know, it was still a very dramatic entrance. And um, once they got rolling on that midnight set, though, um, then I was able to completely relax and just enjoy the concert for the most part because there wasn't really much left to do but enjoy it. And thankfully, there weren't any huge issues that came up that sort of demanded me to sort of go back and, and deal with them at that point. Yeah, so I was mostly just kind of hanging on the side of the stage. Um, and yeah, a lot of memories from that set. Um, I was nervous just about, you know, it was just such an un, uh, untested thing to play for that long, especially, I mean, not only playing for seven plus hours, but playing for seven plus hours when people had already been down there for an extended period of time, had seen a lot of music and were tired, you know, just, I mean, obviously people were amped up, but they were also just, you know, had been down there going for it and not sleeping and, you know, so I was a little nervous that people would just kind of peter out. I just didn't know, you know, maybe I, that's just me, you know, sort of being more conservative or worrying about the worst case scenario or whatever. The band in particular, Trey, was very bullish and confident that it was going to be amazing. And, um, you know, I, I learned long before that event that when he's really bullish and confident that something's going to be amazing, generally speaking, just, you know, stand down and trust him, you know, um, I remember like when they did Remain in Light back in, I think that was in 96 as well, um, and being a little dubious, like, how's this album that most of our audience has no clue about going to go over, you know? And he kept saying, trust me, it's going to be amazing. And sure enough, to me, that was the greatest Halloween show they ever did. Behind the drums, John Fishman was ready. I, and I, I guess by then we had kind of given up songless, like, yeah, and through the most of the early '90s, there were song lists that we didn't stick to. You know what I mean? But there was like a song list. If it wasn't complete abandonment of song lists altogether, it was not long after. And I think, if anything, the the long set at at Big Cypress probably um, a lot like the Baker's Dozen made it so we were like. We can jam anywhere we want. We anything can anything is that's sort of like opened the doors for that. That was fair game at Baker's Dozen. I think that Big Cypress was kind of an early a precursor to that in the sense that it was um, <clears throat> we don't need a song list. Probably it was right around that. If 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 we weren't already there, Big Cypress um, 
probably drove that home pretty solidly. I don't think we had a established set list, but we de- we had some. Well, we had one. We certainly had one island. I'm sure there was a few islands that we had planned out. We had to do this thing where they put us on TV for the heavy things. That was going to be at a certain time. Someone was going to come out and poke us. Like, hey, hey, snap out of it. And so Brad or somebody came and poked me. And you had like a three, you're going to be on TV for two and a half minutes. And that was like the cheesecake idea, you know? Remember Peter Jennings? Fans of the fish. It was time to go to Peter Jennings. Trey prepped the crowd. The next few minutes of audio might be subtitled, How to Create an Inside Joke. Now, uh, you're going to do something pretty cool here. You'll probably notice that the lights are coming on, and the lights are going to come on for about five minutes. I'm going to tell you what's going on. Is that um, on, on ABC, on TV, that Peter Jennings thing is uh, going to New Year's. They're, they're going to be on TV. They're going to do New Year's concerts all over the world. They started in, I don't know, Sydney or something like that this morning. And so they've informed us that they're going to do about six minutes of this concert. <laughs> and uh, you're going to be in front of, I don't know, anywhere from 100, about 100 million people or something like that are going to be watching this. <laughs> so, if you have, you know, a message to send to somebody at home, you know, like, hi, mom, or something, just yell it, you know, and they'll probably hear you when the camera goes over. So that starts in about a minute, and they're just going to turn these lights on, and then we'll play. Okay, Mike and I were just talking. We have two minutes till this thing starts. That actually it would be kind of funny if, like, we'll play a song, right? And we'll play a short song so that there's time for you guys to react at the end. But it's something that we wanted to do on our live album that we never got around to. We are thinking it'd be weird if instead of clapping and cheering, you know, everybody did some odd thing, like, like scream cheesecake or something. Everybody, you know, instead of clapping at the end of the song, you know, just say cheesecake once or something like that. That's what we'll do. We'll do just, we'll stop it. And then everybody just go, cheesecake. And then just be silent after that, you know? Like no extraneous clapping or anything. And you don't have to smile either, you know? Just like straight, dead straight face. Just cheesecake. So we'll play a song with a, uh, okay, we have one minute. We'll play a song with a tight end. As soon as we end, we end cheesecake. Say it like you're pissed. That sounds pretty good too, actually. The chant, the cheesecake chant. Don't just do it once, do the chant, do the chant. And so it was that Fish took to network television with their brand new single, Heavy Things. So new it wouldn't actually be released for nearly another six months. And their inside joke about cheesecake. Oh, it's just like typical Fish trying to be weird. You know, I thought, well, as long as they're... I think we had done that before where we had the audience respond in strange ways. I thought it'd be weirder for the radio audience. You got to understand that, like, the best part of being a fish is this feeling together with the crowd that here we are at the biggest ticketed event on Earth for the millennium. And no one in any sphere of popular culture is talking about this. No one. You know, there's bands playing, you know, all over the sting, whatever, all over the earth. And we're down there in this swamp, in this circular venue with an in-ground pool backstage and everyone hanging out just like the greatest party of ever in, in this city of streets that are built with road maps and fake buildings for days on end. Violence-free, joyous celebration of people with 
three crimes, the whole four. I mean, you know what I'm trying to say? All like a four night all nighter having sharing an all nighter together. So we figured, okay, they're going to peek in on us for like two seconds. So like, you know, the best thing we could possibly do is screw them up. However, they, you know, like the outside world, that's always what it feels like being in fish. Like, how can we mess it up so that you'll go away and leave us alone to our party? Because we're having so much fun at our party. Like, like cheesecake! They could then turn off the cameras and let us go back to our party. I don't even know if the cheesecake got on TV, but... It did. Though only very, very briefly. The fish, four guys from the university, four guys from the University of Vermont. Seventeen years ago, they like to say they were playing in a Vermont bar to one person. Here they are now with the kind of devoted fans everywhere in the country that have, in their equivalents, probably only those who were so devoted to the Grateful Dead. We'll be back in just a moment. For the past eight years, Vermont-based Fiddlehead Brewing Company has celebrated the art of unique and improvisational beer making. You may have had their beers at fish shows in the past, and hopefully you'll try one in the near future. When you visit them in Shelburne, you can sample one of 12 fresh beers on tap, including the classic Fiddlehead IPA. Fiddlehead reminds you to blaze on. Ben & Jerry's has always had an unconventional and memorable perspective on ice cream, just like Fish's perspective on music. In addition to sharing their Vermont roots, their partnership spans back to 1997 with the launch of Fish Food, which benefits the Waterwheel Foundation, Fish's charitable organization. To hear more about Ben & Jerry's work with Fish and the Waterwheel Foundation, check out Under the Scales, episodes 41 and 54. Are you sick of people talking in your ears during fish shows? At Chomp Gone, we've been studying the effects of chompers for years, at fish shows and concerts of all sizes, and have finally come up with a solution which we're excited to roll out during Fish's upcoming New Year's run. For the cost of an extra ticket, we'll provide you a certified and trained Chomp Gone silencer. We'll use a dB meter to determine an acceptable sound level in your personal space. With a loophole we discovered in the end-user license agreement of every Ticketmaster ticket, our certified Chomp Gone silencers are authorized to bind, gag, and if needed, dispose of any stray talkers in your section. Chomp Gone. As Lou Reed once sang, some people, they like to go out dancing, and other people's, they have to work. On New Year's, Jefferson Waffle was one of those other people's. He'd hop from being a runner to a new job. I was a media liaison for the fish team, so I was helping out the national press outlets like CNN and USA Today cover the gag at midnight, making sure all the photographers were in the right place, making sure the writers knew where to be to cover the gag. So half hour, 45 minutes after that, I was off duty, and I had an hour or two to kind of have my first glass of champagne and mentally prepare for the next six hours or so. I'm finally going to be able to be off duty and watch the show. Then, of course, I ran into one of my colleagues in the running department, and it turns out they were shorthanded, and one of the relatives of the band needed a ride to their hotel when the show was over, around 7 a.m. or so. So my night quickly turned into being the designated driver, and I was completely sober for the rest of the set. But I enjoyed it, and I just think, you know, it was a sign of things to come where everyone else is having the time of their lives, and I'm working. I think I definitely napped around 4 a.m., and, you know, as much as Trey likes to say that we're all bonded together because we stayed up all night, I guess I'm not. I guess I'm, I'm not part of that bond because I think I dozed off for a little bit and I kept trying to convince myself that it was okay to take a brief nap. 
I probably was woken up by the vacuum solo or whatever. But besides Jefferson, the band, and the crew, most people definitely didn't have to work. The band cranked through their high-energy numbers, including big workouts from their previous two Halloween costumes, the Velvet Underground's Rock and Roll and Talking Heads Cross-Eyed and Painless. You Enjoy Myself included a vocal jam on the Cheesecake feed. In another age, the memes would have already blown up Fish Twitter. There was an acoustic tune via the in-law Josie Wales, then known Wink Wink as Minestrone. It was approaching three in the morning when one of the night's biggest jams happened. Even John Paluska got to enjoy the music. For whatever reason, the one song that stands out, just without me even like going back and looking at what they played or anything, for whatever reason, I remember them playing this just incredibly ferocious version of Sand. Um, that just sticks out of my head. I'm pretty sure they played it that night. <laughs> um, and it was pretty late, as I recall. I'm pretty sure it was just like this really intense, and I just felt like, in general, what was most exciting and... Um, inspirational for me about the whole thing was just that it it sort of had this arc where it was rolling along and it was really good. They're playing at such a high level and obviously just kind of seizing the moment. And, you know, right around, I feel like maybe it was around 4 a.m., there was kind of this inflection point. It was like, okay, you know, we're over, we're over the hump and we can all smell the barn and it's off in the distance and we're going to get there, you know what I mean? And and then it just kind of built. It was like you could feel this like gradual um, but palpable sense of collective we're doing this together kind of energy, you know? And, and the band got stronger and stronger and um, it just, it was just sort of built to this very gradual crescendo um, as, as the, you know, first bit of dawn started to poke its way out and you could just get a sense that, you know, daylight was starting to come. Uh, people just got more and more excited. They were all part of this. Everybody knew they were part of something that they'll never experience again that was a once-in-a-lifetime kind of event. You know, everybody's had those moments where they stay up all night, but you don't stay up all night with 80,000 of your fellow, <laughs> you know, fish fans listening to this incredible concert in the Everglades, like, that doesn't happen. So, um, I think people, you know, and I was, I was, I just couldn't believe, like, I just feel like nobody left, you know? Like, you know, the, the campground was empty. Nobody was like, all right, it's 4 a.m., I'm going to pack it in. <laughs> Hell no, <laughs> you know? Our buddy Jacob Cohen is a musicologist who went on to earn his Ph.D., but at Big Cypress was seeing his 10th and 11th fish shows if you only count the 31st as one show, that is. For Jake, the music Fish made in 1999 and 2000 especially wasn't just minimalist, but approached actual minimalism in the classical sense. You have lots of repeating cells of music, lots of repeating melodic ideas, grooves that keep repeating themselves, these sort of uh, bass lines that are, are very repetitive. Big Cypress has that, but... It is an intensification of it on a scale that you could not get during a regular show. Sense of a time scale that is so long because time doesn't matter when you're playing for seven hours. But if you listen to the sand from the midnight set, Mike plays the same bass line for about 20 minutes. And, you know, with 
very little variation, very little variation. And so uh, repeating bass lines, you have um, repeating uh, melodies. So Trey will latch onto a melody and rather than elaborating on it or um, playing it a few times or uh, sort of going playing around it or just playing up and down scales in interesting patterns, he will find these melodies and he'll just repeat them over and over again. From the moment when the, the lyrics stop, they it, Trey doesn't play a guitar note, like a typical sort of solo note for like five or six minutes. He's just layering endless sort of layers of sound, these loops that kind of these sort of you know siren loops that he was doing at the time but he's doing multiple different ones with different tones page is playing these long drones on his synthesizers and mike and fishman are just grooving away the whole time and they just let that happen for a while and i don't think that you would do that if you're playing an hour set you know you're not you're not gonna you're not going to allow yourself to take up that much of your hour of music with these kind of long game textures. But on this sand, they do it. And when Trey finally starts playing, he just starts playing two notes. He's just going... Da-da, 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 da-da. And then finally, he starts to solo a little bit. And when he does, it's like, we're already 11 minutes deep into this sand. And you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. Now he's soloing. And the only reason for that is because it changed over such a gradual, long process, you know. And this is what we what we talk about when we talk about minimalism in music is we're, we're really referring to this sort of slow changes over time, which is really sort of a, 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 a unique thing to this set. Big Cypress was an onstage okipah ceremony in numerous ways, though scaling with Fish's new size. Based on the idea of a Native American endurance test, it had finally made its way from Trey's college apartment to the public by way of their long gig gag. Not that Fish called it an okipah ceremony, but many of the details were the same. From Mike Gordon fixating on a single bass part for an extended duration, to Anastasio and Fishman receding to go do Anastasio and Fishman things. A long-running onstage and offstage dialogue that was like an in-joke nested inside an in-joke. And at Big Cypress, it was an in-joke nested inside a portalette, when the guitarist and drummer ducked into the private onstage bathroom for a five-minute conference, both in front of and hidden from 75,000 people, at least until Brad Sands was dispatched to check on them. I think I spent more time in the porta potty than anybody else. <laughs> Photographer Danny Clinch still laughs about it. Like, are those porta potties on the stage? <laughs> Like, this is ridiculous. Like, I cannot believe it. And, and of course, they were. And, uh, you know, they were band only. You know, of course, I had to hold it or, you know, go find a tree or something. To me, one of the funniest things was the band being like, we're not leaving the stage, so put a freaking portalette on the stage. <laughs> because, we, you know, if, if somebody's got to go to the bathroom, they can get up and then go to hit the portalette and come right back. But we are not, you know, we're not going to stop playing. So if someone's got to go, the other three guys will keep going, basically, um, and and get it done as quickly as possible and get back to what, you know, get back. Um, 
And so it was just kind of funny to have a portalette on the stage. I just, and I remember just periodically somebody would have to go and be like, all right, well, somebody's got to go. When you got to go, you got to go. And, the, and, and inevitably some really cool thing would happen with the other three of them. This is around when Kid A came out, for example. You know, this is um, when like Fat Boy Slim was kind of a, a thing. Uh, that first era of that of that band, you know, so like you have this sort of move to a more sort of groove-based dancing music, and I think that you know we like to think of Fish as being sort of untainted by the pop music world around them, but they're not. You know, they're very much they're listening to it. DJ Huevos Rancheros of Thin Air Radio, now an executive vice president at Def Jam testifies to this. If you talk to the band members, you know, all of their musical tastes are really varied and, and disparate, and, you know, and, and, and adventurous. Um, you know, particularly Trey, I think, who has a, you know, a really broad palette and, you know, of, of musical taste that he loves. Um, and did then and, and still does. And I think that they were interested in, I think that, that they were interested in hip hop and, and certainly like a lot of the a lot of the kids on the fish scene were like super into hip hop um, and super into dancehall reggae and super into like, you know, breakbeat shit and super into um, like funk, obviously, and like like more even like ha- straight up house, you know, so and, and disco, you know, there was like huge discos out in the in the in the at those festivals, like huge organized disco, like crazy discos that were out there that were some of like the best dance clubs that you could ever go to were out in those parking lots um and i think like yeah for me it was hip-hop and hip-hop was always a part of my thing even though i was like a hippie you know but hip-hop had always been part of my thing ever since i was a kid you know a suburban kid and it, it 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 always continued to be and those two things were completely separate but in my mind it was like it was sort of the same what i thought was so great about it was like all the kind of big songs like the sand and the drowned and rosa free they were all played so patiently it felt like 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 sand they would just settle into that boom 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 groove and it was like it went on for like five minutes you know before like trey would even do anything you know which actually was like kind of amazing they were also embracing exactly what it felt like the vibe of the whole thing which was like we're here all night we don't have to rush through it i was also gonna say you know the 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 drugs that were around more were the speedier dancier drugs this was sort of the beginning of the emergence of the sort of uh, dancey party drugs in the fish scene. Um, and yeah, so that's part of it too. Because it was wild. Like in the in the two, three, four o'clock hour, just wild. Um, but yeah, a lot of those songs is like have 20 minute renditions and a lot of it's really like dance loops, you know? And you could tell that that, that influence that the band and the audience were talking to each other about that kind of dance influence for sure. Like the like Jabu, like like got a Jabu and a, a sand, that sand and the quadraphonic toplings and all that stuff. I mean that that's like straight up kind of yeah dancey you know sort of dance music fish. One thing I do remember from the show and specifically from the midnight set is looking around and how much it did not look like the same fish audience that it had been in 95. That's when I started going to shows. Um, There were a lot of people around us that were definitely like rave culture people. 
but it had felt like maybe the band kind of starting to move into a more ambient direction had brought in like a new type of fan. And there were people, I remember specifically that they were not dancing like hippies, they were dancing like ravers. And there were a lot of, if I remember correctly, I think there were a lot of people with glow sticks in their mouths, like the little tiny glow sticks which was very much like a rave culture thing. I can't be 100% certain when this incident occurred, but I think it was during Reba, so fairly late in the evening. I noticed a gentleman about 20 yards away who seems to be having a real good time. Now, this guy is, how should I put it, large, and he is up on his feet, raving and raging, and then takes off his shirt. All right, whatever. He's a big dude, but more power to you. A couple minutes later, pants come off. Next thing I know, dude is buck naked. Still, it's all good. People are starting to take notice, but I've seen people get naked at shows before. Plus, it's the fucking millennium. The world is supposed to end and shit. So, again, more power to you. All of a sudden, dude takes off running through the crowd at full speed. Most people around him at this point had already noticed that he would may have taken too much, so everyone is pretty much watching him and is able to get out of his way. And I mean, the crowd fucking parted like it was Moses and the Dead Sea, man. Then the guy just, bam, hits the deck, does not move. A crowd gathers to check on him, and he's up again and on the move in the other direction. Then, bam, falls down flat. Dude repeats this about two or three more times, a couple times falling on people because... You know, there was people's blankets and shit all over the field and people sitting down and whatnot. And then this guy was huge. So I'm guessing like 400, 450. Anyways, by now he's covered in twigs and fucking dingleberries and all kinds of shit. Finally, he hits the deck and does not get up. Someone went and notified security and it took about six guys to host this poor guy up on one of those four-wheeler gators to haul him off. To this day, I wonder what happened to that guy, and I would love to find someone who also witnessed this because it was a trip. There was the Ferris wheel, and up until the night of, you know, you had your various, you know, sparse people selling drugs and doing whatever, but I feel like because it was Y2K, I feel like everybody decided to unleash the most amount of drugs they would ever do and however much their body could take because it was pandemonium like when they came out on the hot dog. It was people were so out of their minds that it was like we're just going to lose our minds for this show so it was kind of kind of apocalyptic if you will where like going back to the ferris wheel so if you go back to the ferris wheel there it was yellow illumination and the illumination the the scintillation if you will that was that reflected onto the ground it was a yellow hue and so we walked over there and there was 
like a bunch of people that gravitated toward that yellow hue and they were all out of their minds like it was kind of like a level of hell where they would come up to you and they'd start shaking and we saw one guy dressed up as santa claus throwing up and i was not hallucinating promoter dave whirlin recalls some of the casualties that wound up in care of the festival they said that they would often have at the festivals they'd have a couple of people claiming to be jesus christ Um, you know they would probably be on some kind of a, a, a chemical that would make them think that. I, I, I don't know. Um, this is my speculation. And and they would argue with each other. You know, they, I'm Jesus. No, I'm Jesus. You're a false Jesus. I'm the God. You're the God. Well, apparently, in Big Cyprus, there were five of them. Five dueling Jesuses. Or Jesai. I'm not sure how you say that. But <laughs> and I just thought that was hysterical. And I wish I had been there to hear it because, uh, you know, our, our medical chief there told me the story. and He said he, it was just the funniest thing he'd ever seen. In the point where they were almost getting into fisticuffs, you know. I figured this is a dancing crowd, but, you know, there's enough drugs going around. People are really partying tonight. By that point, I, when I took my piss break, like, it was just fields of bodies. Like, it, it reminded me of that that civil war scene in gone with the wind which is where the camera pans up and up and up and it's just body field of bodies forever and ever um it was very much like that i was like climbing over people trying not to step on sleeping hippies for michael calori now a senior editor at wired the big cypress midnight set really only began about halfway through right after maybe the first half an hour or so right after the first couple songs one of the people in our group um had eaten something, maybe a little bit too much of something, and started to kind of melt down. He was like crying, he was rolling around on the ground. And I was looking around and everybody was dancing and like nobody was paying attention to him. So I kind of went over and put my hand on his shoulder and I crouched down and he immediately like started crawling into my lap. Uh, He curled up in my lap and sat there for must have been about two hours and just wept and sort of moaned and I was just sort of comforting him and then he started to kind of come back to reality and was looking around and you know noticing that there was a concert going on and stood up and started dancing so I stood up and I realized that when I stood up it was much different scene going on around me than it was when I had first sat down a couple hours previously. Like, the crowd was a lot thinner, for one. Um, A lot of people were sitting down. Some people were even, like, lying down and going to sleep because by then it was about 3.30 in the morning or so. Um, But also I noticed that there were were people who were leaving. There were people who were, like, walking back to their tent or maybe they were just going to get a, a... going to the porta potty or something. So I just decided at that time like if i'm gonna get closer to the stage now is my chance because it might get more crowded again later people might come back for the end so i just started walking and i was sort of like picking over people just like stepping over bodies and kind of you know slipping through little cracks in the crowd it was pretty easy because the crowd like i said you know when people lay down there's usually a lot of space around them so you can just kind of walk And I just very slowly started walking towards the stage. I got maybe about 50 yards away from the stage and it started to get a little bit more crowded. And then I remember they played Albuquerque, the Neil Young song. And it's kind of a slow song. So a lot of people sat down and I just 
kept walking. It made it easier. Next thing I knew, I was about four or five rows back from the stage. And then a bunch of people at that moment all just moved. And I, there's this big open space between me and the stage. So I slid up to there. <laughs> Next thing you know, I'm like right on the rail. And everybody around me is dancing. And there's 80,000 people at my back. And I look at my watch and I realize that there's like another three and a half hours of music coming. And here I am, like in the front row at Big Cypress. It wouldn't be a seven-hour fish set without letting John Fishman front the band and play a vacuum solo on a Sid Barrett tune. I'm sorry, are we at a concert? Kinda. The jams continued, and continued mutating. Another one revered by Fish fans is a nearly 36-minute version of Ween's Roses Are Free. To start labeling any one piece of music as the best of Big Cypress, though, is like trying to claim any one piece of sky is better than another. The thing that is really unique about the Big Cypress Midnight set to me, and that I think stands out from all this other music from this era, is the dynamic level, so the volume, it's, it's just quiet. This is music for the middle of the night. This is music for 3 a.m., you know. Um, I remember thinking during the Roses Are Free Jam that this is what 5 o'clock in the morning sounds like, <laughs> you know. This is what being tired and barely able to keep your eyes open at 5.30 in the morning sounds like, you know? It, it really had that feel of almost like a, a fatigue. Scott Bernstein was near the front. So around five or six in the morning, I finally needed to use the bathroom for the first time. So I headed to the bathrooms and I was surprised by how many people I found that were absolutely passed out. I had to crawl over them to reach the bathroom, something I certainly had never experienced before. And by the time I got back, the sun had come up even more. And it was such a beautiful sight just to see the sun rising over this mass of people. You know how it is when you're at the front row at a fish concert, there's a lot of there's a lot of eye contact, there's sort of a lot of unspoken communication. And that's probably my strongest memory of that night is being there and seeing the band just sort of vibing out at everybody who's there. Um, and that was really evident when the sun started to come up, when like the first light of dawn started to happen in the sky. You know, Trey was sort of, he was playing his guitar, but he was sort of doing the thing with his chin and his eyebrows like, hey, look, look, you know, turn around, look behind you. And we all down front started sort of turning around and looking up at the sky and seeing that the sun was coming up. And just this like sort of murmur grew into... A, a, a very, very quiet cheer <laughs> as people realized that Don was approaching.
Sunrise, it was the 21st century, and here was Fish in the Everglades, still up and playing music as the light spilled over the horizon. The sun had set behind the band, and now it rose in front of them. The moment of bonding had happened. It was an all-nighter. It occurred to me that it was the largest group of people that have ever danced to a sunrise on the planet, at least in recorded history. There was still one more thing that had to occur. When we went back into Meat Stick, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that all been one set. It was like one big Meat Stick sandwich. And seven in the morning, after five hours of music, people could barely stand. But there were still people trying to do the Meat Stick dance. It was like a zombie Meat Stick. It was amazing. John Paluska made it too. And then obviously anybody who was there remembers the sunrise because it was, um, and this is not sort of revisionist history or, you know, kind of trying to put a dramatic, you know, you know, backwards looking tilt on the whole thing. It was an incredible sunrise. Um, it was just this incredible pillowy clouds. Yeah, and the band, of course, just picked the perfect song for it um and it just kind of got, it just slowly and of course you know everyone is almost in a trance at that point so just you know simultaneous i think the sun came up if i'm not mistaken it was kind of like in the band's face yeah um yeah because the band i think the stage was facing um east um if i'm not mistaken which would have made sense that way they don't have the afternoon sun in their face when they're 
doing their regular daytime sets or whatever. And so the band's looking out, so you know, you sort of torn, but like, am I looking at the stage or am I going to turn around and look at the at the sunset, sunrise as it's coming up? But I felt like everyone was just sort of watching it in almost this kind of slow motion. You know, it's obviously is kind of slow motion watching a sunrise. It's if you're actually watching it the whole time, it's very gradual. And I just remember it slowly filling in with this more and more intense kind of pinkish glow as uh, as, it, as the sun really colored the clouds and yeah it was um something else brad sands was another weary survivor i have one photo of fish in my office and it's 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 right after the big cypress set and it's the four of them and me the picture was by danny clinch also up and working all night they had just stepped off stage and it was pretty it was it, i mean the, the sun was coming back up you know um and uh, I remember snapping these photos and I was like, I don't normally use a flash, but I just, I wanted to make sure that I could capture what was happening there. But I do recall Trey telling me one time, he was like, I have no photos of the band in my home. I have no photos of the band in my home. I have this photo in my home. <laughs> well, first of all, the only one who looks worse than me is Trey. <laughs> um, like more tired in a sense, you know? Um, and uh, but it's a great photo because I remember like asking them like, "Hey, are you guys going to do an encore?" And I remember thinking like, when I, as, when the words were coming out of my mouth, how absurd, how absurd it was. And they looked at me like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" Like, I just played for eight hours. You nuts? I was like, "Okay, roll this. Here comes the sun, Paul." After Midnight, Fish at Big Cypress is produced by Osiris Media. Executive producers are RJB and Tom Marshall. After Midnight was produced, edited, and mixed by Matt Dwyer. Written and narrated by me, Jesse Jarno. Production assistance from Christina Collins. Interviews and production assistance from Jefferson Waffle. Art by Mark Dowd. Music by Amar Sastry. Thanks to Fish, Red Light Management, and to all interviewees. Thanks to the fans who submitted their stories, including Stephen Grip, Patrick Hickey, Mark Blitz, Philip Schuster, Bethany Austin, Greg Netzarim, Tano, Jen Chadborn, Josh Silverman, Mike Palmer, Dylan Behan, Rock, Scott King, and Tim Pollock. Until next time. We're bonded forever, and that's a lot of people. And then they're friends. And then it kind of, even if you weren't at Big Cypress, there was something, because how do you explain that to somebody? It's rewarding. I mean, when the sun comes up, you almost feel like, shit, maybe I should have slept. But there was none of that that night. It no, was like, I'm never, that's never crossed my mind. Really? <laughs> Sometimes it is for me. Like, <laughs> Oh, I mean, you know, at Big Cypress. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, Big Cypress. Oh, maybe I should have slept instead of doing that. No, 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 no. Cyprus is a sovereign nation, which allowed festival attendees and organizers to experience this event in a setting outside the dominion of the U.S. But eventually, everyone had to head back to reality. We're lucky that in the United States, we have Headcount, 
to help make sure festival and concert goers are in the know about how to be politically active and support the causes they stand for. Headcount is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that works to promote participation and democracy through the power of music. Headcount stages voter registration drives at live music events and runs the Participation Row interactive areas at festivals, through which they have raised over $1 million for various causes and registered over 600,000 voters. Since 2004, Headcount has helped register voters at fish shows. Next time you go to a show, say hi to Headcount and learn more or register to vote at headcount.org. Backline is the music industry's mental health and wellness resource hub. Launched in 2019, Backline aims to give music industry professionals and their families quick and easy access to mental health and wellness resources. We've lost so many amazing artists too early, and we're glad that organizations like Backline are here to help connect artists and their families with professionals who can help them find the right resources for them. They've already forged amazing partnerships with leading music-related organizations, and we're happy to support their work. Check them out at backline.care.